Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be looking at the 1956 movie, The Conqueror. That movie was actually included in a 1978 book from film critics Harry and Michael Medved and Randy Dreyfus called The 50 Worst Films of All Time. It's because The Conqueror is regarded by many to be one of the worst films of all time. To help us separate fact from fiction, we'll be chatting with screenwriter and author of the book, Killing John Wayne, The Making of the Conqueror, Ryan Udewilligan. Before we chat with Ryan, though, it's time to set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Temujin's motivations for conquering was revenge for Bortai, his wife. Number two, Jamuga was more of a rival to Temujin. Number three, Temujin and Bortai did not meet for the first time as adults like we see in the movie. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. Maybe it's going to be obvious, maybe not. Can you find out which one is a lie? We'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Ryan Udewilligan about The Conqueror. We'll dive into some of the details of the movie in a moment. But before we do that, if we take a step back and had to give The Conqueror a letter grade for historical accuracy from an overall perspective, what would it get? Uh, well, is this out of just A to F or is this the whole alphabet? <laughs> I suppose I suppose we can make some special exceptions. <laughs> yeah, if we start with Z and then just go beyond there and make a letter because yeah it's (laughs) don't watch the conqueror if you're looking to learn something about history great (laughs) well so there's a big elephant in the room i want to address up front the movie is from 1956 it still doesn't really excuse it from some inexcusable things uh Right up front, John Wayne is Genghis Khan, Susan Hayward is Bortai. Uh, certainly not the first time that Hollywood has done what's now known as Yellowface, casting white people in the place of Asian roles. Uh, I know Mickey Rooney's character, uh, probably one of the most popular. Um, but I, I also know that you dedicated a chapter in your book about this. Yes. Can you give us an overview of your thoughts on that? Yeah, of course. It's, it's something that, you know, was unavoidable to talk about. And it just seemed more and more fitting to you know not just address it but explore it and 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 the root of why it was happening and so in the book i i give somewhat of an overview um i i had initially included like the origins of of blackface makeup as well but just to keep with the theme of the actual movie i i, I talked about the history of uh yellow face makeup and then especially at that time in the 1950s it was just like nobody cared like they were initially going to cast uh Marlon Brando as Genghis Khan, and they wanted Ewell Brenner. So there was never any uh, Asian actor ever considered to be in the role. And, and you know, back then, it just, it wasn't considered, unfortunately. There was not a lot of uh, 
viable uh, quote unquote stars or, you know, people that they would let on screen as opposed to smaller, more, um, you know, servant type roles that they would normally cast uh, Asian actors in that uh, were demeaning and, and it's taken forever to actually get proper representation. But yeah, uh, they didn't bat an eye here and they would bring John Wayne in to uh, color his face, get the right skin tones. Uh, they used elastic bands to, uh, you know, uh, get the the correct, uh, as they call it, slant, eye slant, uh, to, to play the role. And uh, again, no one really questioned it beyond the director, Dick Powell, who was sort of, sort of brought out as a uh, hired gun. And he sort of said, really? John Wayne is Genghis Khan, and then he he didn't say anything because everyone was like, "Yeah, of course, it's, he's he he's he's John Wayne." So really, there was no producer in the room or, or anybody who was saying, "No, this is a bad idea. This is insensitive." And it would take decades after this, uh, you know, Marlon Brando turned down the rule so he could play another one. Uh, I believe it's. Um, Oh, now the title just escapes me, but he also plays a Japanese owner of a tea house. And uh, yeah, then you mentioned Mickey Rooney's famous uh, characterization in Breakfast at Tiffany's movie that I love. But yeah, looking back at a lot of these movies, they, they do not age well at all because of this. And, you know, it's it's hard to explain to people like what, what was going through the mind and you're, you're trying to you know, I don't want to defend their decisions, but at the same time, like they, you know, there, it wasn't, uh, well, there, there was definitely racism at, at play behind the decisions, but it just, it wasn't as, uh, thought of and, and as calculated as some might seem. They didn't think about it. And maybe that's the problem. They didn't think about it. <laughs> exactly. No, John Wayne owed, uh, RKO studios, three movies. He did two. And he just wanted to get the contract uh, overdone with. So he picked this movie and they cast him and that was that. So, you know, it, it sounds like a crazy casting misfire. And a lot of critics at the time even pointed that out. But still, uh, yeah, no one no one batted an eye. They just said, OK, this is what you want to do. Great. Moving on. Well, something else I wanted to address up front, and it's another elephant in the room when you're talking about this movie, uh, just the blatant sexism in the movie. Uh, there's uh, Throughout the entire movie, uh, Bortai is treated like a possession. Uh, he's She gets hit, she's thrown around, he's forced to marry, things like that. You know, lots of abuse that we see um, both on the screen and plenty is implied, like when she's forced to share a tent with uh, Temujin. Was this sort of abuse common in that era like in, in history or is that more of a, a hollywood thing again we're talking about you know another issue with, with hollywood well absolutely it, it was definitely a uh, commonplace in that time uh in in genghis khan's time so uh yeah, they probably uh scaled it down quite a bit because of hollywood censorship but this movie is yeah very sexist as opposed to a lot of movies that were coming out at the time even now Howard Hughes took over RKO in 1948 and generally what a lot of people figured he did that for is so he could contract young starlets and just abuse them. He would uh, he would have this whole long list of, of young actresses who were trying to make it big and he was the big producer and, you know, he just kind of had them all on speed dial and like, okay, I'll put you in this movie if you do something for me. And so that was what he was doing for about five or six years and even afterwards when he sold the studio 
And the word on the street is he went on a date with um, Susan Hayward in the late 40s. It did not go well. And he held that against her and wanted to get revenge. So this movie is pretty awful. And the, the role is, as you said, like she's basically just a possession. She has to do some some uh, terrible uh, uh, dancing, like um, almost a striptease at one point. And she's just being passed sometimes they, in some scenes by one character to another, just uh, high above the ground. They like One scene, uh, John Wayne just inexplicably laughs and then picks her up. And that's the end of the scene. Like, okay, that, that's great. But uh, yeah, so I, a lot of people think that Howard Hughes recognized that this is a terrible role and he cast her in there to embarrass her and get his revenge. Uh, so yeah, a lot of it was just because of Howard Hughes' tastes. He was making a lot of these types of movies at that time, like one called Son of Sinbad, and it's all about uh, these harems and and uh, I think there's about four or five different movies that he did at that point of time where it's just a lot of uh, scantily clad ladies doing dancing for no reason whatsoever, just sort of an interlude to uh, appease his sexist tastes. <laughs> we started off with <laughs> two great, great things there. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, there's there's a lot of that and I address it in the book as well because there's just, you know, there there's so much to dive in as uh, like what's <laughs> so wrong with this movie. So, yeah, so so many things, so many things. Um uh, and we haven't even gotten to the the historical side yet. So. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. Well, in the opening sequence speaking of kind of going to more of the historical, um we see Temujin attack uh, a market caravan to capture Bortai. She's Explained in the movie as a, a Tartar woman who's being held by the chief. And then after the battle, he takes her away, basically kind of sets up the rest of the events that we see in the movie. Um, after capturing her, he finds out that she's the daughter of Kumlik, who was the Tartar chief that apparently poisoned Temujin's father. We find that out later on in the movie. How does the movie do depicting how Temujin and Bortai met? Not well, not well. I, I I don't know if you know personally much of the history of, of Genghis Khan and and sort of what. It's been a while since I've 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 researched it. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, he was. They were. They both were children when they met. Really. Um. You know what it's theorized. They were. They were between the ages of nine and twelve. So John Wayne is fifty years old in this movie, and so obviously very. Uh, uh, tweaked and changed for that because it was somewhat of an arranged marriage at that point. You know, they weren't officially married, but it was sort of a uh, a set thing when they were children that they were to be married at some point. And so this um, uh, stealing a board tie and then and then uh, rescuing her afterwards in real life, they they were married after that situation and became a couple. But here, uh, yes, there's sort of the uh, I don't want to call it a meet cute at the beginning, but they do uh, meet each other in the in the desert, and it's definitely not how it went. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. 
access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. After the, that attack that we see in movie, uh, we see the Mercat chief, he, um, Targeti, or Targeti, I believe is his name. Uh, he retaliates by attacking Timogen's home. He burns a lot of the houses, frees the horses, but then Timogen kills him, and then he plans his attack on Kumlek, which, as I was watching this, it didn't seem like anything that he really wanted to do at the beginning of the movie. It just seems like all this kind of falls into his lap, and so the impression I got was all of this is centered around Ortai. Is there any truth to that? Not really. Uh, there, there of course was when they, you know, rescued her, brought her back, and and then they were married. That that's basically the only little blip that's actually true here. Um, the the fun fact that I like to tell people uh, that I found out about the screenwriter Oscar Millard, he didn't know who uh, Genghis Khan was when he took the meeting to write this script. He was brought on as a writer for hire, and he was a really Smart guy, he'd been nominated for an Academy Award for writing a couple of years beforehand. And he, before he took the meeting, like it was just thumbing through an uh, encyclopedia and then had to look it up and like, okay, this is who they're referring to. This is what Genghis Khan means. They took the meeting and went in that way, completely blind. So, you know, back in those days, a lot of uh, these biblical epics were a lot more classical uh, and trying to, uh, you know, be entertaining for, for modern audiences with uh, a romance. So they really played up the actual romance point of view and, and you know, uh, relationship between Bortai and, and Temujin because it's, you know, it's really not how it played out. It was a lot. Well, we don't know. We don't know what kind of love or relationship that they actually did have. But here it's a lot more flirtatious almost will they won't they and really driving what uh what temujin wanted to do and, and conquer when really you know that relationship didn't drive him much so what what was his driver then was essentially building the empire was his driver yeah absolutely land land and power okay okay i i mean that make, that makes sense i just not what we get from the movie at all <laughs> No, and that that would be a very different movie, and uh, I, you know, it, it's more truthful. But usually, in these types of 
movies, uh, you know, a, a motivation like that. How do you convey that? Just maybe better hands, you could have a better story. But, uh, you know, in the 50s, a character who's bent on just getting more land and, and, and conquering, it's, it's just, it doesn't jive with the type of movies they were making and wanted to tell. In one of the battles that we see in the movie between the Mongols and the Tartars, Temujin is shot with an arrow and he's captured. He does manage to escape. Uh, conveniently, there's a, a cave nearby that he can hide in while uh, the rest of his soldiers get routed. Um, it seemed like a pretty significant defeat. Were there any defeats like that where Temujin barely made it away alive? Not that I could find. With the... Uh... The movie, you know, it, it kind of happens with the, the screenwriter lingo. It's the all is lost point where he's at his weakest. And so obviously they had to include something to to make it seem like he's not going to make it when he obviously is this grand conqueror. Uh, but uh, Genghis Khan actually died uh, from an illness and they're not sure what it was. And some scholars have pinpointed it that he actually in battle fell off his horse and then contracted something and it, it festered inside him for a couple of months and then he died but uh you know they, they're really not sure it's just this mysterious illness that he died of and i'm sure he did get struck with arrows and uh i don't know I, with the amount of people that he had fighting with him there was no way that he was going to be cast off alone like this and in his very young days he was at his weakest point when his father was actually killed but uh you know he would have been just a boy and and sort of fending off for him himself at that point so nothing unfortunately that's what uh is depicted in the movie well you you brought up something that that made me um curious because in the movie at the the timeline of the movie his father is already dead um but then you were saying that you know the um Genghis Khan and, and, and Bortai actually met, you know, as, as kids. So obviously, you know, there's there's an age difference there. Uh, what timeline is the movie trying to be in? <laughs> I wish I knew. I, I don't know that the the screenwriters and the, the actual people behind it knew because, you know, there's a lot of little interesting facts. And when, when you go and look at his life, it's, it's so huge. And, and a lot of it is spent conquering land. But there is that tiny little blip that is well he you know and, and it would have been better i think if they did it you know knowing that oh yeah well four time and hit and him have history and then she's kidnapped and he goes to rescue her it's kind of like that in the movie but uh i think they really played that up because that's where a sense of adventure and sort of grand old storytelling of going to rescue the damsel in distress comes from so i i you know i think they just extrapolated that little tiny portion uh and they threw in a couple of uh real life characters and made quite a few of them up and that's really what we get as far as a, a representation of history you know it's a it's a small uh point somewhat of a an origin story you could call it of of genghis khan would it be correct to basically say they're essentially cherry picking things and and then throwing it together into a new story almost Basically, yeah, you really can't identify a time period in his life that that would be accurate. I mean, he would be a young person in you know his teens at, at this point when this was happening and this actual um, uh, rescue took place. But 
you know, then a good 10 years goes by where he's conquering all of the other uh, tribes and then finally receives the title uh, Genghis Khan. So, yeah, it's a, it, you see that a lot in movies, so you can't really focus and and uh, hold this one uh, uh, up and fault it uh, because of that, because a lot of movies do pick and, and take little pieces of time periods and, and switch them around to make it more palatable for audiences and you know probably the, the least uh, the lesser sin that this movie committed <laughs> yeah yeah that's true yeah it is common in movies and and it makes sense i mean you're trying to take years and years and throw it in here i just didn't know if there was a particular part that they were trying to focus on um in within his life or if they really were just kind of picking and choosing and, and pulling as is common the word on the street is Howard Hughes just showed up one day to the the office, uh, the RKO offices or whoever he was communicating with and just said, we should do a movie about Genghis Khan. Just out of the blue. Okay. So they tried to get it going and ultimately did it with John Wayne. But uh, yeah, there was really, when you look at him and the screenwriter, there was really no like yearning, like, oh, let's tell this history. Let's let's uh, really get into this and 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 represent something it was like oh biblical epics are popular mm, genghis khan okay off we go wow wow i had <laughs> a lot of forethought put into that <laughs> mm-hmm. yes well if we head back to the movie we see uh Temujin gathering clans of mongols going to war against kumlik uh in addition to it, the mongol clans he also tries to get help from his father's blood brother wang khan uh he sends his brother, uh, I think two of his brothers actually, um, it was kind of iffy. There were some parts where it kind of mentioned Kassar was his brother, um, but I wasn't sure if they were referring to actually like actual um, biological brother, if that's what they mean, or if they're just kind of saying. From what I understand, I, I just, yeah, I believe it's just, you know, they they sort of call each other brother all throughout. So I think that was just sort of like the clan speak they were trying to go for. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was that or if it was actually a, you know, biological thing. Mm-hmm. But then they go to try to get uh, Wang Khan's armies, which we never really see, but we assume that, you know, this is, this, these are big armies, right? Um, and then the shaman gets in the way. He has Kasar killed. Uh, he goes to Temujin and tells him that Wang Khan is not going to send his armies. We're just going to watch and wait for you to be destroyed. And so then he convinces Temujin to turn on his father's blood brother and take the city for his own and the shaman even goes in there and and mortally wounds the khan uh the next day we see the generals swearing allegiance to temujin he declares himself not only the chief of the mongols also the ruler over any of possessions of wang khan it just the big turn right and i know that there's a lot thrown in there it just happens pretty quickly in the movie as well um but how does the movie do showing this and kind of that almost seems to be his rise to power in the movie where he was a leader to begin with, but now he's the big leader? Yes, exactly. And he, yeah, he was a leader from what I understand that that little portion is is true with Wang Khan and, and you know, actual the the turning on it and, and the battle that that from what I understand is one of the only little accurate parts, but it's only a very small portion of it. In all of what I could find, like the, you mentioned, the character of of uh, Kumlik, uh, I don't believe that character existed. I think that was a, a fictional 
representation. And that's what they did a lot, like with this movie, like uh, the the sidekick uh, Jamuga, it was, you know, they even changed the spelling, uh, was more of a rival to uh, Genghis Khan or Temujin. They, you know, they worked together a little bit earlier on in his life, uh, but, you know, they, they actually fought each other. And, and uh, that's something that is kind of hinted to towards the end of the story, but... Yes, most of these representations are either amalgamations of different characters or just completely fictional entirely. What was his rise to power then? He basically did he take over Wing Khan and then be, kind of become um, the, the great leader? That was it, it took a long time. Like it took, it, you know, it's it's a very simplistic battle here. As you get you you get one fight uh, when it took I think around ten years for him to wipe out all the other different tribes because there you know there were, were the Tartar tribes and different um, uh, people who were constantly standing up to him or, you know, he would go and send his his armies that would constantly grow and then, you know, pillage and, and take over. So I think, yeah, between what's depicted there with Wing Khan, it was another 10 years of actually rising to power until he was finally recognized as the, the great universal ruler. Well, that, that makes it sound a lot more deliberate than the movie, for sure, because it, in the movie, you, you have that shaman character that I think he was even cast as shaman. So, you know, yeah, who's definitely, definitely fictional. Yeah, <laughs> but it just seems like a like a um, maybe maybe the shaman character had been planning something like this for a while. But it seems as far as uh, from Temujin's point of view, like a, a last minute just turning on his friends type moment, um, whereas if it actually took 10 years that's a little more deliberate. Absolutely. Uh, they're they're going to shrink that down to make it, um, uh, you know, to make it a, a drama and a more of a dramatic choice. But uh, yeah, it's it's not representative. It, it was a lot more um, <laughs> fighting and strategy and, you know, a longer rise to power. Well, there is a scene uh, in the Tartar village where Boitai, she was uh, she was rescued from by her father uh, from Temujin. Um, and then she says something about uh, she tells Jamuga that, you know, I'll gladly betray my father, uh, cast my people into Mongol bondage just to be in Temujin's arms. Right. She says she's uh, consumed with the want of him. It just seems like, again, like a really fast turn that all of a sudden, you know, this this guy that she hates treats her terribly throughout the entire movie, both before and after the, you know, her apparently falling for him. Um, it just seems uh, like it like a real fast turn, but even from what you were saying before, it sounds like um, there's probably not much accuracy to that turn in, in Vortice. No, like, yeah, she, she has a, a very sudden love for him that makes absolutely no sense. And it's, you know, even as a screenwriting uh, standpoint it just there's no motivation other than you know she was kind of saved by him that he's a, a rippling strong man that's really all that she has to go on she's not a developed character and so yeah that relationship isn't very convincing but when you look back at what they actually did have to go on you know what I said before where they were children when they were first met so you know there's you know, a very different historical standpoint to draw on that way. Uh, but a lot of um, marriages back then were and still are, unfortunately, arranged or, uh, you know, uh, 
exchange for land, in exchange for uh, power or armies. So there wasn't a lot of uh, Hollywood romance uh, uh, thrown into the mix. It was uh, a lot more, uh, well, it was a lot quicker for sure. And, and a lot more pairings that were made that, yeah, unfortunately had nothing to do with love. So it was their marriage actually was an arranged marriage. Was Bortai then uh, like the daughter of a chief or something? I believe it it started that way. You know, there was they they didn't meet and fall in love. It was you know one tribe and another. That it was sort of alluded to, and then it didn't happen because she. Uh, I, I believe that's when uh, Timogen's father died, and so it got put on hold. That's when she was taken, and after all of that took place, then the actual marriage. I I don't I don't know if there's any dates available out there what age they were but it happened sometime after that point. Okay, so so she it it was for uh, merging tribes essentially it was kind of for um, a political purpose. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, not not like what we see in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even in the beginning in that in that opening scene, like when when he first sees her, it's there's nothing really political about it he didn't even know that she was the daughter of uh the guy who killed his his, his dad at, at first in the movie no it's love at first sight she's just sort of riding on this little um not a chariot but like being carried throughout the desert and she looks stunning like like she has never set foot in the desert before and of course you know it's susan hayward so she's got red hair and makeup and hollywood glamour radiating so yeah of course he's gonna fall in love with this this uh actress this portrayal but it, yeah it's uh you know nothing to do with real life well i have a feeling i i might know the answer to the next question then because <laughs> near near the end of the movie yeah <laughs> it, it leads up to this big battle right and the big battle is between temujin and and kumlek um there's cavalry on both sides interestingly i didn't see any infantry fighting it's just just cavalry uh and then during the battle, you know, the two leaders, of course, have to face head to head. And then the battle itself between Temujin and Kumlik is like just a couple seconds long uh, before Temujin kills him. Uh, was, I mean, you said Kumlik was probably a, a fictional character anyways. A fictional character, probably a representation of, you know, many, he, he had many battles. He killed many people, uh, killed many leaders. So, you know... Probably my best guess is that the screenwriter just needed some sort of villain, some sort of character to add in the end. And as you said, like it's it's very anticlimactic. Like it just sort of happens, and then and then that's it. Uh, like it's a very for a movie that is fairly epic and has you know some battle sequences and taking place in the desert. It's it's wrapped up very quickly, but it's you know they have little. Uh, historical uh, details to explore and they just yeah they, they have that character kumlik who I, you know they, they didn't really have much motivation for him either so they just decided to obviously ax him because you know Genghis Khan obviously continues on after the, the point of this movie so or the point of the story that they were telling in in the movie yeah, I, I had I actually had to watch that scene twice because I was watching it and I was taking notes as I, you know, I was watching it as I, as I usually do. Um, and it was over. I was like, wait, what did I miss? Is it wait? What? <laughs> like This is the big the big fight at the end. What? It's over. I had to go. So I had to go back and watch it again. No, OK, it was just very anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah. 
at, at the end there, after Kumlik is killed in the movie, um, there's a line in the movie where Jamuga tells his brother that you have no need of me henceforth, my brother. You have found your destiny. Far greater conquests will be yours, Temujin, and men will call you, and he, well, he pronounces it Genghis Khan, the perfect warrior. And that's the only time throughout the movie that Temujin is called Genghis Khan. Is that the true story of how he got the title? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, J- Muga did not instill that. There were, uh, you know, uh, we don't really know where that title came from, but it did sort of happen like at the end, there's sort of a, a ceremony or a big celebration. That part is accurate. Like uh, eventually he was, after that sort of 10 year long rise to the top you know he was dubbed genghis khan which is you know universal ruler uh so we don't know who gave it to him but it, it sort of was this uh honor that was bestowed upon him by all of his followers when really he had uh little people at that time to actually uh uh fight with he he, he reached the top so that part is how it is depicted not by who gives him the title? And again, it could have been anyone. It could have been this collective uh, group or just something that had been uh, sort of uh, uh, talked about or, or uh, you know, uh, people uh, starting to call him this name and then it starts to gain popularity. Maybe that's what happened as well. But, you know, he was celebrated in this this big way and officially called by this name through a celebration. And I mean, I guess you reach the top. Maybe he just gave it to himself. I mean, <laughs> when you're at the top, I guess you can do whatever you want. <laughs> it, it could be. It could be. Yeah. There's a lot of speculation. <laughs> we do get some voiceover at the very end of the movie that says the great Khan made such conquests as were undreamed of by mortal men. And then it says for a hundred years, the children of their loins, speaking of Temujin and, and Bortai, uh, ruled half the world. Uh, I thought it was very interesting that that en- ending there because as as I was watching that, I realized, you know, I'm watching this movie and it's called The Conqueror. And really the only thing that we really see him or the only mention of him co- making these huge conquests and conquering is is that that little bit of dialogue at the end, you know, throughout the, the story. Um, and I'm, I'm sure <laughs> this could be an entire podcast series in and of itself, but for Genghis Khan's real conquest, since we don't really see those in the movie, can you give us kind of a brief overview or, or kind of a timeline of what actually happened in his life? A small bit, yeah. He uh, it was a lot of leading men, a lot of battles, and a lot of expanding forward. Uh, you know, through China, a little bit of um, uh, Korea, uh, all the way to like there's reaches all the way to the Afghanistan and that area. So. You know, there there was just yeah a lot of um, conquering for as we touched on before for power for land and and just for ultimate dominance. And then he does die in an anticlimactic way, not in a battle, but because he falls of illness. And yes, uh, I, there's always that uh, fact that a lot of people like to bring up that there's a certain and that it doesn't help that that percentage escapes my memory right now that there's a amount of lineage today that people can be traced back to Genghis Khan because of all the raping and, and, um, you know, unfortunate, uh, uh, business that he was doing is, was popular in that time. And 
that's the weird thing about the movie as well. Like it, it was filmed in the fifties in a very conservative time and they portray him as a very noble, strong, mighty ruler, but they don't even touch any of the negative parts. He was, you know, he, he was, we, we see him as a mighty conqueror. Some of us do, but he's a very controversial figure because obviously he committed so many, like, even that it wasn't, they, they weren't crimes. It was just the way of, of, of conquering it. And that was, just murder and and torture and and rape and having multiple uh, wives. I, I think there was more than just Forti. But yeah, they they obviously couldn't put that in a, a movie at that time. And Genghis Khan, or uh, John Wayne, even uh, uh, said that he is go or wanted to play the role as a gunfighter and saw. Genghis Khan is a cowboy, so he approached it in that direction. And so, obviously, you get no representation, no accurate representation in, in that way. Uh, there's been a couple movies, I think, that's that's depicted his life. Uh, nothing uh, out of Hollywood. There was a Chinese movie called Mongol that came out in 2007, and that was uh, somewhat of a, a very popular and accurate representation um, there was a couple movies also in the fifties that sort of used Genghis Khan as a villain, but nothing ever has really been portrayed. So I think now when you get a lot of, uh, uh, limited series like Vikings or, or Rome or things like that, I think the story of Genghis Khan and, and what you can show now, what you could tell because of the, the moral ambiguity, I, I think, uh, you know, the story is probably ripe for the picking for, for a show and, in the coming years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to tell it a little bit more accurately <laughs> than the conqueror. <laughs> exactly. And it, it's so old is the thing too. I mean, this happened in the, the 11, uh, the, the end of the uh, 1100s, early 1200s. So, so much is lost and a lot is only speculated. So, you know, I, I don't have a lot of knowledge to, share with you because there there's a few details of, of battles but his day-to-day life um and the sort of the, the kind of person that he was it's all orally told through people who had memories and, and very little is available so you know what what is available obviously uh the screenwriter and, and filmmakers of the conqueror just tossed right out and used only tiny bits and pieces but well, and that's the way it is with history. Sometimes we don't, there's, there's, there's a lot that we don't know. And, you know, that can give uh, the ability to fill in some of those holes in, in movies and things like that. But, but also you just, just throw, you can just throw it out or just, and just <laughs> like this one. <laughs> well, speaking of the movie, I know the movie, this one in particular did have a lot of controversy about where it was filmed, the illnesses befalling the, the cast and crew after it was made. Can you share a little bit more about what happened? Yeah, well, it was filmed um, in near downwind of the Nevada nuclear test site, uh, right after they had been busy uh, ramping up all these these tests in the early 50s. And so they chose this area just outside of St. George, Utah, called Snow Canyon, and they wanted to uh, emulate the Gobi Desert, and they looked in shooting in Mongolia. Obviously, that was way too far, so they, they picked this little spot, didn't really do their their homework and it was uh about 130 some miles downwind of this test site and a lot of uh wind had blown nuclear fallout uh that specifically piled into that area so uh a lot of people 
in that area, St. George, Utah, uh, a little bit of Nevada, uh, they were actually getting sick uh, in the late 50s, all throughout the 60s, getting uh, cancer, a lot of uh, uh, stillbirths, a lot of uh, sheep uh, had a lot of strange growths, and they couldn't really quite figure out why until the late 60s, early 70s, and they pinpointed it was because of the, the nuclear tests. And then you also had, uh, related to the film, you had director Dick Powell, uh, actors like Susan Hayward, uh, Pedro Armanderas, um, Agnes Moorhead, they all died of cancer. John Wayne got cancer in 64, uh, had a piece of his lung removed and, and actually beat it, but then he got cancer again in the late 70s and, and died from it. But in between there, he became sort of an advocate for cancer research. A lot of people uh, speculate is because of their smoking. All of these people, including John Wayne, were uh, pack-a-day smokers who would, you know, just constantly puff away. And so it's a rumor that we'll never really be able to prove and know. You know, there is real downwinder cases. Uh, there was a long battle through Congress to actually get uh, an apology and some reparations for families who lost people uh, because of uh, nuclear testing con contamination, and and finally they got uh, ahead in the early 90s and started to receive money and, and apologies and recognition. But the people who were involved in this film, it's not just the stars, it's uh, uh, dozens of, of cast members and, and crew members, uh, extras. They had hundreds of extras who were Native tribe members from Utah in the area, and they'll never know how many people actually died because they were brought into that contaminated area um but yeah it's this constantly contested rumor you mentioned some legislation um was there any legislation around the movie itself or any anything tied to that what the conqueror did was help uh shed some light on the issue because there was famous faces who were dying and, and a couple of journalists who sort of pieced that together. And that happened in the late seventies, early eighties. And that was sort of the big breakthrough for the downwinders to actually get attention and get something moved through the government. Uh, but they allotted uh, only certain um, payments for people who lived uh, or were present in these States that were contaminated at certain pockets of time and because of the film shoot, which is, was only a couple months, and it was a couple of, uh, about a full year after the last nuclear test, the government just deemed that they were ineligible. So no one from the movie actually got any any reparations, any forgiveness. Um, there was one extra who really sort of took it on upon herself to try and fight for, uh, uh, or, or, you know, you at least get some sort of apology or attention, uh, Jeannie Gerson. And then she died in the early 90s. She had cancer, I think, about at least three times and, and, and ultimately died of it. So, yeah, I, I, again, it's still, as I put the book out here, it's still a subject that people love bringing up every now and then because it's such a strange rumor. Like, oh, John Wayne and this whole cast and crew were plagued by cancer because of nuclear contamination we'll we'll never know we have people scientists who say yes we have scientists who say no uh, government officials it goes back and forth but you know decades have gone by uh, well over 50 years 60 years so it's just unfortunately yeah yeah it's it's in the past nobody wants to accept responsibility for it 
Yeah. There, there's something else as I was, um, I was trying to find the film to, to watch it as I prepare for that. I couldn't find it on any streaming service. I had to buy the DVD to watch it. Um, and that's not the first time I've had to do that. But while I was looking for it, I noticed something about how Howard Hughes bought all of the prints and then kept it away from the public for a while. What's that story? He's uh, the most fascinating man who ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the beer guy, isn't that? <laughs> Most interesting man. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, that's right. God, yeah, no, him, yes, and and Howard Hughes. Uh, yeah, he just had his finger in every pie. This guy, and then eventually, in 1955, after driving the studio into the ground, he sold RKO, and they tried to get things back onto their feet ultimately uh they couldn't and they released the conqueror it didn't make back its money uh so they closed the doors of this this magnificent uh magnificent studio and so howard hughes approached them and bought back the conqueror and another movie that uh he and john wade made called uh jet pilot and he there really was no clear reason he some people think that he just loved the movie so much and the negative reception sort of bothered him, so he he gathered it all. Uh, some people think that the nuclear uh, contamination and the, the deaths of everyone was responsible, uh, but it really couldn't have been because he bought up uh, the rights to this movie before those deaths started to happen. Um, I think it was just something ultimately that he wanted to, to keep for himself and maybe try and make more money on at a certain point. But then he did start buying up all the prints and that's where it gets a little murky if, if it was, cause it happened all throughout the sixties. If it was him, you know, scooping up this cause the movie was so, such a, a terrible uh, uh, mess and he was embarrassed by it or he felt bad for what was happening. Again, we'll never know, but it was essentially a lost film for about 20 years. No one saw it. It didn't play on TV. RKO was one of the first studios to actually lend out their film library and start playing them on television with uh, two absent movies, which being The Conqueror and the other one. Uh, and then at the end of Howard Hughes' life, when he was in Las Vegas hotels and, and kind of losing his mind because of uh, germs and, and all these different phobias he would request his staff to put on the conquer and play it on repeat so he would watch it just a hundred times over from his bed um a lot of people said that he was attracted to, to john wayne and his portrayal he was attracted to the the mighty conquer uh uh image that maybe he saw in himself um we'll never know but that was something that was happening at the end of his life and then uh, ultimately, yeah, it was finally released on uh, uh, VHS in the mid-80s. And because of all these stories of contamination, it sort of took on a different life. And from then on out, it's been uh, hard to find. Uh, when you do find it, it's usually referencing the poor reception, the miscasting, or the um, the nuclear story. So... Occasionally you can find it on TCM, but it's still, it's sort of a, a print by order basis. It's run through Universal now. And so I, I'm sure that's how you got it is if you order it through them, they just manufacture one of these DVDs and send it to you. But there's really not a lot of these uh, copies floating around in stores. That's for sure. It took me a while to hunt one down. 
watching the movie on repeat that would drive me crazy i think <laughs> exactly yes yeah that, that's what did him in it was watching the conqueror over and over wow well okay let's say you were in charge of this movie what's something you would have done differently or would it be easier just to say the one thing you would have kept this <laughs> but it's all these these sins these mistakes that i think keep it in its public eye and that people keep revisiting it it's sort of this it's so bad it's good kind of realm so if i were to change something i it, it wouldn't be well known anymore i think if you change the casting of john wayne and and cast someone more suitable for the role it would sort of fall into obscurity um and it really it wouldn't have mattered as much or if you actually filmed it where it was supposed to maybe somewhere different you know i, I would probably do those two things if i was going to make this movie film it somewhere safer and more proper and cast someone more appropriate but yeah it's uh we, we got a very different uh tale out of it because of those mistakes yeah yeah it just would have been another bad movie that nobody knows about <laughs> yeah yeah precisely uh, speaking of uh, coming back into the public eye, your latest book is all about the making of the movie. Can you share an overview of your book and let someone listening to this know where they can learn more about your work? Yeah, it's uh, Killing John Wayne, The Making of the Conqueror. Um, it covers every possible side uh, that you could think of related to this movie. So how Howard Hughes uh, decided to buy a RKO and run it into the ground and make all these terrible movies. And this was sort of the big climax, the magnum opus, and how John Wayne got involved with Hughes and RKO and, and owed them three movies. And then the actual uh, problematic uh, shoots. And then there's a lot of nuclear history as well, something I, I didn't know much about but found so interesting. Not the actual... Well, there is a lot of uh, nuclear science in there, but I'm not a nuclear scientist. I'm a, a film historian. So I really touch on the cultural aspects of what was going on when these nuclear tests started happening in the late 40s and how people would travel to Las Vegas just to feel the rumble of the nearby tests. And people in the area were urged to actually come and watch the, the tests unfold. And then uh, I touch on a lot of uh, the private lives that sort of intersect around this movie of the stars and, and people that were involved. And unfortunately, this, this the latter half is a lot of death and a lot of uh, despair of trying to uh, get some, uh, some, some light onto the actual aftermath, not just of the Conqueror crew and cast, but of downwinders in general. Yeah, it's a, it's a story to tell, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many different facets. So if you like film history, if you like uh, American history, nuclear history, if you like uh, the history of business and how a movie studio, like the the studio collapse and is sort of the at the end of the studio system and the golden age of Hollywood. So there's really something in it for everyone if uh, you're interested at all. And you could pick it up in any bookstore, uh, have it ordered through, you know, any of the book suppliers that you go through or Amazon. Perfect. And I'll make sure to include a link to that in the show notes for this episode as well. Thank you so much for coming on a chat about The Conqueror. Perfect. Thank you very much for having me. I had a lot of fun. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. 
I'd like to thank Ryan Udwell again, once again, for sharing his expertise about the movie The Conqueror. If you want to hear more stories about the making of what many consider to be one of the worst movies ever made, some will actually say it is the worst movie ever made, go check out Ryan's excellent book about making that movie called Killing John Wayne, The Making of The Conqueror. You can find all his work at ryanudewilliganauthor.com, or as always, you can find links to his books in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's Home on the Web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one. Temujin's motivations for conquering was revenge for Bortai, his wife. Number two, Jamuga was more of a rival to Temujin. Number three, Temujin and Bortai did not meet for the first time as adults like we see in the movie. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's count backward and start with number three. Temujin and Bortai did not meet for the first time as adults like we see in the movie. It is true that the movie got the way Temujin and Bortai met completely wrong. As Ryan pointed out, the two actually met as kids and not adults like we see in the movie. That brings us to number two. Jamuga was more of a rival to Temujin. That is also true. The relationship we see between Temujin and Jamuga in the movie does not really reflect the true history of what actually happened. That means number one is the lie. Temujin's motivations for conquering was revenge for Bortai, his wife. A lot of the movie suggests Bortai was at the center of Temujin's motivations for, well, almost everything. The truth is Temujin's motivations to conquer lands was, well, to conquer lands. Basically, the same drivers a lot of conquerors throughout history have had, money and power. Last but not least, it's time now to let you know how long it took to create this episode. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you'll know I like to share this information just to help you appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to. After all, a huge majority of podcasts are like mine, completely free to listen to, but that doesn't mean that they're free to create. Quite the opposite. They can cost a lot of money, but almost every podcast out there has even higher costs than money. They have high costs in time, the time it takes to learn the technical side, to research the technical side, to keep up on it, to keep up on the episodes, to uh, research the episodes, record them, edit them, and so on. But I only have these statistics for my own show. So with that in mind, today's episode took a total of 42 hours to create make it clear that's only my time it does not include any of ryan's time and to be even more specific it doesn't even include all of my time because that 42 hours is only the time that it took for me to produce this one episode it doesn't include all the time i spend building maintaining the baseline true story website uh, finding new guests scheduling logistics social media recently behind the scenes entirely migrating podcast hosts all of those things They don't really have anything to do with just making today's one episode, but they're still required and things that need to be done to make the podcast overall. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. 
So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider supporting the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, you can learn how to support the show at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And don't forget, if you're catching the audio version of the show, I want to let you know that you can now watch the episodes on YouTube. Subscribe to the show over at youtube.com slash based on a true story podcast, or you can chat about this episode in the based on a true story Facebook group until next time. Thanks so much for listening and I'll chat with you again really soon.